I'm going to be very brief um, because this is Peter's event, not mine. Um, Peter Frankopan has written a, a remarkable book, um, The New Silk Road, um, or The Silk Road, A New History of the World, um, is uh, astonishing, not only for its, uh, the density of its research, which is amazing in itself. Um, you feel that he must speak about 16 different languages when you look at the footnotes and see the, the most uh, astonishing and fascinating detail. But the main um, impetus of this book is that it takes history away from where in Europe and in the West we've traditionally felt it to be, um, a, a Eurocentric history, basically, an America-centric history, um, in which other lands, Asian in particular, are in some way subsidiary. And he's attempted to put instead um, the emphasis of history in lands which um, are the traditional lands of the ancient Silk Road and others. In other words, to move it eastward um, towards uh, Central Asia, Iran, and even further east. And he's now going to give a short, short, fairly short presentation. Um, and I hope I will have perhaps ten minutes to ask him questions afterwards. And then we will open this um, remarkable discussion, as I think it will be, um, to you and him. Thank you. Hello, can you, can you, yes, can you hear me? Yes. Uh, good afternoon. Thank you very much, um, Colin, for a very generous introduction. I am, I am not worthy to be sharing a stage with a man who's seen so much of the world as Colin Thubron. So I'm, I, I was in shock. I thought I was the second violin who could hide in the shadows. Um, but thank you very much for the introduction. Uh, thank you, Jaipur, for this incredible festival, the organizers. I know how much work goes into it. Um, and I'm personally incredibly <laughs> grateful to be here. I'm particularly grateful to be here because, first of all, I love India, I love Rajasthan, I love Jaipur, I love literary festivals. Uh, but I'm particularly grateful to be here this morning because last night I took an Uber home uh, to my hotel and it worked quite well. I recognized everything until eventually I heard the Uber device at the front saying, stay on National Route 12 for 176 miles. <laughs> so... I saw due, due to arrive in nine hours, 40 minutes, so I could be somewhere very different talking to a very empty space. Um, now, I promised to give a, a good talk, but I have a favor to ask of all of you, um, which is I have teenage children who do not believe that their father can attract an audience like this. So, for their sake, if you humor me, and in return I will give you not a good talk, I'll give you a great talk. If I go to say hello, and you, if you can just pretend that you're excited, even if you're not, and cheer, and I will take two seconds of video, and my children will stagger with uh, disbelief, and I will be all of your servants in perpetuity. So, hang on, here we go. Good afternoon. Uh, no, not yet. No, no, no. Okay. It didn't work. Okay. Good afternoon, Jaipur. Okay, thank you. I can't tell you how grateful I am. Thank you. 
Um, so Colin, of course, follows in the steps of some of the greatest travel writers of all time. Uh, his book on the Shadow of the Silk Road is a seminal exploration of looking at the Silk Road uh, traveling from China through um, up until the Mediterranean coastline. And that Silk Road, the Silk Road, or the Silk Roads, is a, is a phrase that captures something very specific that, that all of us feel something about. And I'll show you a few pictures, I hope, if, these, if this works. Does this work? Oh, switch it on. That's okay. Automatic fail. Okay. There we go. That's what we talk about when we, when we talk about the Silk Roads and the Silk Road. That's, the, that's more or less the path that um, Colin took and travelers took uh, either going eastwards or westwards. And when we think of the Silk Road, we tend to think of these monuments of astonishing beauty that perhaps don't strike those of you in Rajasthan as unusual, but to European eyes and to um, people who aren't as privileged with their architecture as here, uh, some of the, the, the sites and locations of astonishing color, astonishing uh, beauty, and of great civilization. But the Silk Road talks to us of a, of a time that is uh, peripheral and past here. This is Herat. The last few slides were Samarkand. This is Herat. Here the Great Walls of the Ark Fortress in Bukhara in modern Uzbekistan, the walls of Khiva in Uzbekistan. These, this feels like a lost world. That's one reason why people enjoy traveling along these routes and connecting with a, with a past that has been. No one quite knows where it came from or where it went. Uh, and uh, that's the sort of starting point most of us have. Here, uh, the dome in Isfahan of the Great Mosque that in fact is the cover of my, of my, of my book. And when we think of Silk Roads, we don't just think of the buildings uh, and the people. We think of the landscapes. We think of deserts that you have to cross, mountain ranges, the hardship, the difficulty of getting goods from A to B. That's what we think about when we talk about the Silk Road. It tends to be thought of as an economic exchange system that we, we, um, we think of camels, Sogdian traders, oops, Sogdian traders who are the, um, have a sort of particular resonance with people. People love Sogdians. Um, traveling over long distance on their camels. And then, of course, the silks themselves. Uh, this one, a magnificent two examples dating back what, one and a half thousand years uh, of the kind of high-value products that, are, that were brought across large distances. Uh, now, of course, uh, the Silk Road, it's a, it's a very difficult word because there is no Silk Road. And, in fact, there's no, there's no one route, there's no multiple routes. Most of the exchanges along these uh, networks was very local. Lots of goods. As we all know, you, you, spoke, you speak mainly to your next-door neighbors unless you come to a festival like here where there are gatherings. People come from far and wide. Most of the exchanges are, are small-scale. Very few goods are traded along the whole system, although the ones that do, of course, high value and luxury, and they're the ones that get written about and, and get preserved because, of course, they are, they're special. Uh, but when I was growing up, I never heard really about the Silk Roads. I certainly wasn't taught about the Silk Roads. And in fact, I wasn't taught about anything. I was taught that this is what the world looked like when I was a boy at school and even at university. And in fact, worse, that's not even what the world looked like. Um, that's what the world looked like. And I have some very distinguished academic colleagues here, so they are exempted, of course, from this charge. But even we in Europe struggle to be able to say anything of any value or meaning, or meaning about, let's say, medieval Poland or uh, the Balkans, or the, well, either the first or the second Bulgarian Empire, uh, or the Caucasus, uh, or Scandinavia. We know about the Vikings, we have a sort of compressed 200-year window. But for us, the world, uh, and replicated by historians, tends to be a very narrow focus on Europe, 
And there is a flourishing school of, of, of Europe's interventions with other parts of the world, but Europe is at the centre of our historical narrative. Uh, last night I was at a dinner uh, talking to very charming 12-year-olds uh, asking about the curriculum here, and this is more or less what her world looks like. Uh, she's at school here in, in Delhi, and her world is the Indian subcontinent, South Asia, I suppose. And the only way and times in which her horizons are broadened in school is to look at the connections with Europe after, from, well, from 1500 more or less onwards. But just to refresh everybody's memories, this is what the world actually looked like. And we, as, uh, as uh, I'm not going to blame historians, we, I think, as, 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 as people who are interested in reading, uh, people who are interested in ideas, we, I think, can forget how to look at connections, because to see connections, you need to have ability to read languages, and you need to have um, an inspiration to go and cast yourself into worlds that you don't understand, the sort of things that gets Colin to walk around uh, impossible mountains in Tibet and to throw himself into situations where you have to push yourself, where you can't understand what people are saying, and you put yourself in the, your, hands in the li your life in the hands of, of others. But my inspiration as a boy, well, I, there were three figures, and I'll leave you to guess which one was the one that I've modelled my life on. Uh, one, uh, born in 1971, Luke Skywalker, um, but I had no Jedi powers, so not him. Uh, Alexander the Great, who set out to conquer the world, and that would have been a nice idea. And then, of course, uh, Indiana Jones, who came to Rajasthan, used to try and escape from his colleagues at his university, and even got involved in the crusade. So that's something that uh, I followed through. But the ancient Greek world was the thing that lit me up. And one of the things that I remember first reading about, about ancient Greek mythology, was about the, the story of the Omphalos. Uh, Zeus, the king of the gods, uh, in Greek mythology, set two eagles at either end of the world's landmass, and he made them fly towards each other. And at that point where they met, he set up a sacred stone, the omphalos, the navel of the world. And the navel is a very important part of all of our um, religious ideologies. Well, not all of us, maybe not Christianity and Judaism uh, and Islam, but in, in this part of the world as well, the belly and the belly button, are they mean something very specific. That navel of the connectivity to Mother Earth is crucial. And I had a map more or less like this on my wall. It did have the Americas on it too. And no matter how I used my fingers, I could never make the eagles get anywhere close to what I was told was the center of the world, which we call the Mediterranean. That's what it means. And that doesn't look like it's really close in the middle. Every time I ended up um, working out where the center of everything happened, it always seemed more or less in a sort of circle around the Caspian Sea. And uh, to that extent, uh, that's where I spent all my time studying as a graduate student, looking at these connections that link the Pacific coast of China, through up with Scandinavia and even with Iceland. And to an extent, what you learn very quickly when you start to cast your net wider than the narrow confines of our geography and our, our historical common baggage is that, and it annoys me we talk about globalization, it annoys me intensely that Tony Blair flies around the world giving lectures about globalization as though it's something new. Because in 300 BC, the world was connected in a way that looks like it's connected today. The only thing that's different is speed. And as a tweeter, I don't have 12 million followers like Stephen Fry, uh, but this, the way in which information is exchanged is m obviously much faster today. But in a world two and a half thousand years ago, there was intense interest in where the best wood came from, the best jewelry, the best manufacturers, the best, the best foodstuffs, the best ideas. And our common ancestors, and I think what makes us all human, and in fact, Jaipur, the literary festival, perfectly encapsulate the three things that I think make us all interesting as a species. 
Uh, one is our willingness and our ability to communicate. That's why I'm, well, that's why we're talking. Uh, second, and you just need to stand in the street and see the taxi trying to come past, our ability to cooperate in spite of all of the odds uh, of trying to crash into each other. But third and above all, our, our, our curiosity. That's why you're here today. That's why you're at this festival. And that's why I'm here, because although I'm talking now, to listen to other people, to listen to ideas, to learn, to borrow, to try to find ways of refining what I think and try to interact with people is what makes us interesting, what makes us, what makes our, which makes culture, makes art. It creates all that is best about our species rather than what lots of history books get written about, which is about war, and they're the worst of our, of our worlds. Um, but so the place where ideas and goods um, get, have always been exchanged, most of all, is, is precisely in this circle that I look at, the heartland of the, the heart of the world, I call it in my book, where all of the silk roads flow in like arteries from both east and west and from north and south. The silk roads is a, is a uh, ambiguous network of connections that um, look a bit like the brain. These nodes that connect in all sorts of mu- multiple and manifest ways that are difficult to track, but they are, it's a mesh, it's a web. And it seemed to me self-evident that the place to, stand, to understand the, globe, the world's past is to stand in the place where all of our religions have either been born, or most of our religions have been born, or flowed into. And that world where Judaism, Islam, Christianity all sprung from a, from a very narrow region. In fact, of course, the holy sites of Islam uh, in, the, in, the, in what's now Saudi Arabia um, were slightly off-center, but the heartlands of the great... Muslim empire that followed after the death of Prophet Muhammad was located absolutely fully in the center of this zone. And this map which shows the spread of religions that Buddhism and Hinduism was sucked towards these areas. It's in what's now Iran, Mesopotamia. Christianity was drawn eastwards. We think of Christianity as the preeminent European religion. But Christianity was born from Semitic languages. Uh, And it spread eastwards much more aggressively, if that's the right word, much more expansively than it did in Europe to the point that there were more Christians in Asia until about 1300 than there were in Europe. We forget that. We don't know that. We forget that cities across in Gundashapur in Iran, uh, in Merv, in Turkmenistan, even in Kashgar in China, had archbishops uh, a thousand years before um, the Americas was discovered. So when, when Obama, when American presidents all sign off with God bless America, that God that they're invoking, the Christian God, is one that had its, had its um, genesis in, the, uh, in, the, in Palestine, but which grew and spread along these silk roads. Because when people interact with each other and they exchange ideas, there's nothing more important than ideas about faith and salvation. Why are we here? So, of course, it's not just um, ideas that spread. It's also um, an area where people move around to trade. And, of course, this, this central zone is where the world's major language groups collide. This is where the Semitic languages interact with the Indo-European where the Caucasian languages play off with the Altaic languages uh, of the Turkic peoples. Uh, and you have a world, a sort of a cauldron in the center that is constantly like, acting like a magnet, drawing people in. And that heartbeat, those veins, explain not just the ancient world, not just the early modern world, the medieval world, which means something different here, I understand. The, the Indian medieval and, and the European medieval worlds uh, the early modern and the modern and contemporary world. That heart explains how we have come to be. And I'll, I'll just run through some of that, and then, and then I'm sure there'll be lots of questions. So I'll, I'll just gloss through. But here's the, the picture of 
the Islamic Empire that is uh, a combination of the ancient Persian Empire and the Roman Mediterranean Empire that joined together in about the year 640, 650. And when they connect, you have a, a string of cities. Cities are fantastic. Even in places like Jaipur in Rajasthan, cities are the heart because they generate exchanges and they generate tax and they're very lucrative. And when the Roman and the Persian empires bond together, we have an explosion. It's like a jet engine being turned on. And this world galvanizes trade, the exchange of people, the exchange of languages, the exchange of idea, of curiosity that, of course, involves South Asia in a very dramatic way. There's an enormous appetite for um, ideas to flow through into this world, whether it's from north, south, east or west, whether they come from Christian sources, Buddhist sources, Hindu sources. Uh, scholars in the Islamic world are not chosen because of their faith. They're chosen because of their brilliance, much like my colleagues, are, and, well, my colleagues, not me, my colleagues are chosen for their distinction and their skills too, rather than judged on their backgrounds, ethnicities, and so on. And the, uh, the Islamic empire devours information. And the scholars it patronizes produce texts on consciousness, on optics, on astronomy, Every single Sanskrit text that can be brought into the Arabic world is translated into Arabic and studied by these brilliant, brilliant, they tend to be men, but they're not only men, to create a world that is sitting in the center, uniting South Asia, China, and into the Mediterranean, a sort of a flourishing and efflorescence of culture that we've forgotten. We know about the House of Wisdom, but the centers of learning a thousand years ago, if you'd had a version of me standing here, would not have come from Oxford or Cambridge, or from the great universities in the United States, they would have come from Bukhara, or Balkh, Samarkand, Tashkent, uh, places that we find, I think, maybe in North Rajasthan you can do that, but my students are unable to place them on a map at all. Cities like Merv, Merv was the biggest city in the world a thousand years ago, described as the mother of the world by one of the great Arab geographers, Collins' predecessor. Uh, and this, this world which energized itself was one where exchange was profound. And Europe in this story is nowhere. I was taught at school the Romans in Britain, 0 BC, give or take. And then the next page of the book is the Battle of Hastings a thousand years later. Because that thousand years of European history doesn't seem to matter to anybody. And I mean Western Europe. The Byzantine, I'm a Byzantine historian. So I mean, I mean broadly speaking, uh, the European experience doesn't matter. And there's a reason for that. And the reason is that Europe, despite what we might think, despite the historiography, doesn't actually have much of anything. We don't have any fossil fuels, we don't have any very little gold, small amounts of silver, bit of tin. Europe doesn't produce anything in, the, uh, in, the, in late antiquity and so on. It's a, it's a province that has no interest. Alexander the Great, one of my heroes, it never crossed his mind that to conquer the world, he should bother with Europe not even a side expedition to make sure that it all worked. Europe was, was out of the picture and in the shadows. And our galvanization process happened very much in line with these connectivities. And with the, with the world of Baghdad, with money to spend, uh, there were great efforts to find things that we could monetize. And we tried to send um, amber. If you've seen Jurassic Park, the sort of fossilized, um, fossilized sap. Uh, sword manufacture we got quite good at. Um, some limited forms of miniature art. But the one product that we had in great numbers in Europe were um, women and children. 
And although we, dis- we, although we think of the Vikings as arriving through the fog and massacring everybody that they could, Viking trade is highly specific, highly directed, and extremely uh, well-contained and well-run. Vikings made fortunes out of white slave trades. And some of the great cities in Europe spring as slave trading centers, places like Dublin, places like Utrecht, Mainz, and above all, one of the great jewels of Europe, Venice. And we know this not just because historians write about it. Some historians can be unreliable. They, they write what they see there and then. But we know this because up the Russian river systems, heading towards Scandinavia, we found coins, silver coins from Baghdad, uh, from Samarkand, from, um, from the Arab, Arab-speaking world, where the scale of business is not in the thousands, not in the hundreds of thousands, not even in the millions, but in the tens, if not hundreds of millions of pieces of silver flowing forwards. And some of the work I've been doing with colleagues in Poland right now are on hill forts across these rivers where we thought that the early Vikings or the Slavs who lived in these regions uh, practiced animal sacrifice in large numbers. But it now turns out that these bones we find are human remains. Because if you're a slaver, somebody falls ill or doesn't get sold, there's no point feeding them. And Europe has never had a problem. In fact, the world has never really had a problem about about slavery. White slavery was a significant part of how bullion started to galvanize the European experience. And control of these networks, here the the Russian river systems flowing towards Baghdad and then Constantinople, it wasn't just people, it wasn't just ideas, it wasn't just um, goods, silks, ceramics, wood, um, spices particularly, but these routes, I'm overlayered here, the, 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 the black line is the spread of the Black Death, and the grey are the spread of the Mongols. And you can see, I think, in this, in, the, in this picture, how the Silk Roads act as gene corridors. Flora and fauna, I've been working on walnuts, trust me, it's a long story, on how walnuts are the best markers. Stone fruit are very, very good trackers um, to, to see who's living where, who's exchanging where. The spread of fruits and high-value goods um, show how our, how our ancestors, the migrants of the fourth and fifth millennia BC, migrants from the Gothic empires, the migrants from the Mongol world, these these waves that push um, constantly towards the heart of the world because control of these networks is profoundly important and they bring with them sometimes unexpended consequences like like the Black Death, which decimated millions. Now, the general story of the Silk Roads, of course, is that by the time of um, Columbus and Vasco da Gama, the the opening up of uh, rapid exchange between India and, and Europe, that the Silk Road sort of sag. The, sort of, the general view is that, well, they get, there's a replacement. But I can prove to you that that's not true. Uh, because what happens when um, Columbus and the Spanish discover the Americas, and almost exactly the same time, four, six years later, Vasco da Gama finds a route round the southern tip of Africa through into the, to, to the Persian Gulf and then um, to India, is that what that unleashes is a, a wall of cash. It unleashes silver that is taken from mines in Potosi in modern Bolivia, the single biggest silver strike in human history that allows vast amounts of money to flow into Europe. And that money helps galvanize our artistic renaissance, it helps galvanize all the great arts, all the great buildings, all the great universities that are founded at that time or, or, or start, to, start to grow, I should say better. But it, it gives suddenly immense spending power to Europe's um, new rich. And where they look for their goods and their products is, of course, to India and to China. And that then in turn um, sends money this direction. So London's role, Toledo and Seville's role, and then London, Amsterdam, much like it is today, a financial center 
that is recycling capital. It's a sort of, it's a, not money laundering, but it's like an engine that is pushing money from one side of the world to the other. And one of the great beneficiaries of this Indian wealth, because um, that's what Columbus thought he discovered. These people, you know, the, the local, the Native American population, even when I was born, were still being called Indians, helped build some of the greatest Indian monuments of all, including, of course, the Taj Mahal, and even here, right next door to us, the city palace. Because Rajasthan is itself a product of these Silk Road's vibrancy and the sudden ability of merchants, of princes, who had more access to cash, more flows, more tax revenues, to be able to build. And the building that they did was to connect closer to Central Asia and to these Silk Roads. And through a, through a, a, a play of replacing one consonant where in Europe, the Mongols are synonymous with violence and so on, all these awful things. Here, the Mughals have, uh, you know, they have their dark side as well. But the Mughal jewelry, the, Mo- the, Mo- the jewels of, of Mughal building, architecture, culture, the fabulousness of how India itself starts to have this world that we see around us is directly a result of Europe's uh, need to try to take, to, to replace these silk roads or have access to them. And that eventually ch- turns into a desire to control them. Because controlling the world means holding onto these roots and these connections. And to the extent that um, we call it a great game, you know, William Dalrymple, if he's here, his unbelievable book, Return of the King, showing how important it was for Britain to take control, to try to intervene and to have access to um, the, that central piece of the jigsaw, one of the central pieces of the j- jigsaw in Afghanistan. It changed how Britain dealt with the world. To the extent that when I was brought up, one of the questions I asked, and I, I've learned in history, the best questions are the most stupid ones. I couldn't understand why she was called Queen Victoria, and yet there was a British Empire. That didn't seem to make sense to me. If you have an empire, you're an emperor or an empress. And in fact, she was called Queen Victoria until 1870. The reason that changed was because the Tsar of Russia used to send his envoys. Uh, increasingly, the Russians pushed their frontiers ever further into Central Asia, ever closer towards these networks, and would arrive at courts in, in Lahore, in, in Jaipur, in Jodhpur, and uh, in Delhi in due course, and would um, present a 15-page introduction about how, how magnificent the Tsar was. And then the British envoy would say, I'm here from Queen Victoria. So there were discussions in the Houses of Parliament about we needed to rebrand Queen Victoria as an empress. And of course, the sort of hardline conservative faction in Parliament thought this was awful, that the Queen is good enough for us, should be good enough for everybody else, and we should never do what uh, the Russians changed. So but we did. We, we made her an empress. And Victoria was delighted. She signed all of her Christmas cards that year. Uh, Victoria Imperatrix, the, the, the Latin for empress, with the, with the, so the X marking a, a kiss at the end to all of her, her ministers. And I suppose the control of these networks is the story of the 19th century, of the 20, 20th century, and of the 21st century. And these individuals are just part of the most recent story for control. I don't have enough time to uh, go through how we've gone from the the so-called great game of the 19th century. But that story of who is able to connect and lead in these parts of the world. We think it's always to do with oil, uh, but there's much more profound issues at stake. Some of it, as we know, in most recent years to do with religion and for the hearts and minds of people. But all of these these, uh, individuals, the, the, the revolution in Uh, Iran in 1979 that was on the television all the time when I was growing up and yet we were taught nothing about Iran. Uh, um, Saddam Hussein with a friendly handshake from Donald Rumsfeld at a time when Saddam Hussein was America's greatest ally. Uh, This picture of Osama bin Laden 
1993, Robert Fisk of The Independent, a very respected, a wonderful journalist, wrote a hagiography almost uh, about um, Obama, who says, I'm just a silver engineer, I mean no harm, I'm entrusted, but of course was recruited and very heavily funded um, by, this, by CIA weapons and so on, in intelligence. And Christina Lamb talking uh, in heartbreaking terms about what went wrong there. And then, of course, the mission accomplished. I'm not putting that up to, to, to laugh or to joke. But the control of these networks has been fundamental to our world. And often I go places and people say, you're very lucky the part of the world you work on, it seems very, very important right now. And you say, well, it's been important since uh, the third or fourth millennium BC. But we don't join the dots. But we break history into periods and we break history into regions, and we break our specialisms into areas that we feel comfortable with. And like Colin, uh, as a travel writer, you can't learn, you can't, be, um, you can't push things forward unless you push yourself to try and do things that are um, very ambitious and sometimes over-ambitious. Books that try to tell a new history of the world, I'm aware of the lightning rod attack that one is likely to have, of even trying to tell history in a different way. But that story of how Europe rose that our, our export, our fundamental skill in Europe has been our violence. That's what we celebrate most of all through our armed forces. So that's how Europe was built with castles, through fortifications, through a constant warfare that made weapons better and better and better until we produced weapons so powerful we would all die. Um, and when the Europeans first arrive in India, in fact, there's some wonderful letters where some of the local rulers say, I don't understand what you're doing. The merchants, almost the minute they get off their boat, start building fortifications in what's now Chennai, Mumbai, and Gujarat. And they say, well, we've been trading with our neighbors and over long distance for thousands of years. Why would you feel the need to fortify yourself? We trade with people, and if you rip us off or we rip you off, we won't, we won't work together again. And the Europeans say, just trust us. And that evolution of fortification to trading concessions to unfortunate, unequal partnerships that turn into colonizations is part of the story, I think, of looking at the West in a slightly different way. But this is how the world looks to me. This is the region that we should all be studying. We should all be teaching our children. We, we should, of course, ask our politicians to go and learn about rather than guess what's going on and try to, try to assume they know how they're going to solve what's going on. Just a, a series of, of flashes of the last 20, 30 years. Well, in the 90s, it was the Balkans. Uh, then, of course, Saddam Hussein in the 1990s as well. Uh, Afghanistan after 2011. Well, Palestine and Israel no longer on the front pages, but a, a, bubbling, a bubbling problem. Iran, until two or three weeks ago, not our best friend. John Kerry last year saying we shouldn't take the nuclear option off the table. And now, possibly, a pillar for the West to reorientate itself. Today, Xi Jinping, the Chinese president, is uh, in Tehran with Rouhani while we try and guess what's going on. The Caucasus, we've forgotten the invasions in, in Georgia and the collapses in Chechnya again in the 1990s. Well, Syria, of course, the Ukraine, northern, northern Iraq now, uh, the, the anxieties about what Istanbul is going to do, which direction Ankara and Turkey will face, Turkmenistan and Tajikistan under major pressure from um, ISIS. And that world is a united one. These are the Silk Roads that are alive. And what happens here will shape the next century. It will shape the next century in European cities because of the terrorist act. It will shape the hydrocarbon world. It will shape the economic development of even places such as China, where in 2013, Xi Jinping gave a talk in Astana um, about a time for what he called at that time the New Silk Road. It's now called the One Road, One Belt program. And this is what it looks like. And this One Road, One Belt that is the blueprint for China's next century is exactly how the global communications and exchanges looked 
excluding the Americas and excluding West Africa, uh, this map, if you replace one road, one belt, that's what things look like in the year zero. When the Emperor Augustus commissioned surveys to explain the sea routes and the trade routes across with profound interest to see what was going on across Asia so that Rome was, was or, always its orientation was towards the east. This looks how the world looked at the time of uh, a millennium ago. This is how it looked a thousand years ago, 500 years ago after Columbus, after Vasco da Gama. This is how it has always looked. But for all sorts of interesting reasons, we, we don't understand how it works. And my, my working hypothesis, it's that I'm not a medical student. I don't understand how the body works. I, I've been told I've got organs, and I, I sort of roughly understand what they do. But if I didn't know that, I would have no idea how my body works. But the job of a historian um, is, to, is to do a sort of an autopsy, to open up what's, and to look what's beneath the skin, to find those arteries, those veins, those organs, what matters, what's important. So there I think I, I've come to an end. Uh, I don't know if you have any questions at all, but thank you above all for being here. But thank you for my round of... My children won't believe it. I'm incredibly grateful. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. I will come if I can be heard. Can I be heard? Yeah. Just. Um, with a question that interested me um, very much when um, you say in the book, and you stress it, um, that much of the second part of the book, the first is, is uh, remote history, but the second part is very much of our own time. And what strikes one, because of the sheer scope of what you're covering, um, is the duplicity of Western powers, of Britain and America in particular, the continual um, hard-headed, remorseless pragmatism that you highlight. And you've mentioned, too, that there's a, a viciousness um, in, in Western, Western Europe, I think, in particular. Um, I think you call, called, um, called them pathologically um, uh, vicious. And can you um, say a little bit more about that, um, that informs, I think, quite a lot of the feeling in this book? Uh, well, there probably, there's a, it's a good question. There are, there are probably two disclaimers. Uh, one is that a historian is, is reliant on their sources. And I happen to have uh, landed in a once in a generation, once in a lifetime, um, cluster of information that's available to all of you because of WikiLeaks and Edward Snowden and because of the declassification process being accelerated in America because things have gone so badly wrong. So you have access to materials in real time that, but, that, but those are all on one side. I, can't, I don't have access to what's going on in, in Tehran and in, in Iran and in, 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 uh, in Russia. So you, 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 if you always are going to have a slight skew towards the West. And my anxiety is that... that oh, not anxiety. I, I think that needs to be the corrective, that you, you, you're not trying to beat the West about the head, but you just have access to materials that allow that picture to paint itself. I mean, we do have, uh, interestingly enough, um, all of Saddam Hussein's audio recordings... He, like all pathological lunatics, uh, was uh, a, a pro profoundly cruel, disturbed, paranoid uh, man with moments of profound insight as well. I mean, that's why he was able to lead Iraq so effectively, I suppose, if that's the right word. And underneath the presidential palace in Baghdad in 2003, um, all of the tape recordings were found. They've just been um, uh, dumped online, some of them transcribed and so on. And so you, you, can, you can build a picture of what's going on. But one of, the, I think, the most telling moments of the last 
30, 40 years, is uh, the moment where um, Ronald Reagan goes onto the airwaves and addresses his, the American people. And he says, more or less, he more or less gave my talk. He said, Iran and this part of the world is extremely important. And by the way, my fellow Americans, they've got a lot of oil, so we mustn't be too difficult. And he said, we would never sell weapons to Iran. Never, because they're the enemy. They're involved in terrorist acts, and we are you know, pro, uh, pro, well, not pro the Shah, but we're very anti the uh, Iranian leadership. Uh, three months later, he, he again interrupts the airwaves. He said, my fellow Americans, three months ago, I told you we hadn't been selling weapons to Iran. And um, my heart tells me that's still true. But my head now tells me that that's wrong. And I'm very sorry for misleading uh, the, the American people. And we forget, I think, that the, almost the entirety of Reagan's administration were, um, were indicted for breaking U.S. law, but of selling weapons to, uh, to Iran at a time when it was U.S. policy to be trying to support Iraq. And you have those, t- those two TV um, uh, bulletins on, on record with Saddam Hussein listening to them. And he turns the TV off at the end and says... How are we supposed to deal with these people who will lie to us and, and are sending us weapons and then we find out they're selling weapons to our lethal enemy at a time when the Iran-Iraq war was at its peak? And that sense of, um, of, not, of just abandoning the ship mid, mid-Atlantic, or mid-Atlantic is wrong, abandoning ship for no reason. You know, Christina Lamb was talking about that the other day, how we invested an enormous amount of energy and collateral into Afghanistan in the 1980s once the Soviet Union left we all pulled out. And we're very good at half, um, half finishing things or half starting things. And in the West, I think we, we, we make the mistake of looking at the Iraq war and the intervention since 2003 on its own as an isolated problem. In fact, our interventions going back now more than a century have been uniformly disastrous. Uh, from the discovery of oil in Persia in the early 20th century, we were constantly trying to play both sides and we were trying to make to, to do deals where, on the one hand, we were talking about democracy, but on the other hand, giving support to autocrats. We turned a blind eye when it suited us, but then when we found that there was someone who um, said the wrong thing or we felt uncomfortable with, whether it was Mossadegh in Iran in 1953 or Bashar al-Assad in Syria, whenever that started, I suppose, three or four years ago, we suddenly switched horses mid-race. And that way of doing policy... I, I'm not a politician, and I don't have any illusions... Um, I'm not a smart ass who thinks that it's easy to do. You know, the, 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 and in fact, the, the humility of a historian, it shows you the other way around, that it's almost impossible to get the right answer. But it is important to try to learn and see where things have gone wrong in the past. Those, those interventions we've had are uniformly uh, catastrophic and, um, and self-defeating. The um, continued um, duplicity and change of mind um, in the West is... Basically, I think it appears, um, it's apparent from your book, is due to short-sightedness that there's, it, it's playing the situation as it is at the moment without any real in-depth knowledge of the cultures um, in which we are, the West is intruding. Well, because we're, Europe is in the, and the United States, we're in the wrong part of the world. You know, geography has meant that we don't have a frontier with the Islamic world, apart from in Turkey, really. And we don't, when we talk about the Mediterranean, by the way, we don't, we don't mean, nor, I mean, you do because you're clever, but we tend not to mean North Africa. You know, we tend to mean the Mediterranean as those nice bits of Spain to go on holiday and, the, and Italy. But the Mediterranean as a sort of singular unit, um, you know, we, we don't have those, those cultural memories, those historical um, connections, the same way that, that Russia has had a frontier with, um, through the Caucasus and, um, 
through the steppes for, for a thousand years. You have these neighborly connections. And it's very much that language that people in China, people I've been speaking to in Pakistan, to even here in India, of course, uh, in Iran and Iraq, the people I know, it's, it's about these, we are neighbors and we need to solve these problems together. That is the sort of script, I think, of today. And we in, in the West are geographically removed. We're culturally insensitive. We're politically alienated. And I think that that's recognized in the fact that in the United States now, where there's some of the cleverest people in the world in the State Department, that they don't know which way to turn. They can see problems in the Middle East. They realize that we're connected to all of this. There's real anxiety about what China is doing and that Obama called it, or it's been called the Obama pivot of Obama saying, we can't get involved in Europe and in Europe's affairs in the Middle East that much anymore. We're going to disengage because our real problem is looking looking east towards, or looking east towards China across the Pacific. And that sense that you can't, there are too many cards to hold and how to play them is, I think, something that is, that, that is a source of anxiety for us in the West. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if we should now turn the questions over to the audience. How are we for time? Yes. Okay. We must now let you in because I'm sure you have, I can see, masses to say. The lady here. Where do you see India in the new order, in this one belt, one road scheme? Uh, I think probably with respect, you, you might be asking the wrong person. I mean, I don't, I don't want to talk about things that I don't know. And also, um, I'm, uh, despite what I tell my children, I'm a historian, not a prophet. So, so uh, I, 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 I uh, well, historically speaking, India, if I understand what's going on in, in India at the moment, there are uh, many questions about what India means and what India's role will be in the future, what, what it means to be Indian and what it means to be Indian in relation to its neighbours. Uh, I think that what's, what seems interesting to me is that there is a um, there is a competition, I suppose, with China and India, which goes back many centuries, uh, millennia, in fact, for leadership of this, these neighbouring areas. And um, the key quality, I think, like I said, as, as um, human beings, we have are, is communication, uh, curiosity, and uh, and cooperation. And those characteristics are very easy to lose. Um, with governments that don't want to listen to, to other people. They're very easy to lose when states don't want to listen to their neighbours for whatever reason. So as a, as a mild-mannered man who, who I, I, you know, in universities we argue with each other all the time, but we do manage to pull together. And I think those regional corporations are important. My, 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 my sort of anecdotal, skin-shallow, uh, skin-deep, shallow view is that India seems to be disengaging from some of the discussions that are going on more regionally. But um, that, that's in, impressionistic, and I may be entirely wrong. Yes. Yeah, I think one of the main things you're trying to say is that history is repeating itself again and again. So from your um, all this um, study and everything, what do you think are the one or two things that we must learn from the past? Oh, that's a good question. Um, that, that's the sort of thing one should go with Colin when he goes to meet wise and holy men sitting on top of holy mountains. I, I think that you know, the, the most underrated qualities um, are, are, of human beings are, are our compassion and our ability to create. You know, the reason why we are all here, and when I, as a humble author amongst such distinguished peers talking about how they write, how they've made things, that our ability just with, a, with, our, with our fingers to, to create um, and I think that we, we need to reflect that on the fact that 
no matter how bad our problems are, we need to try to um, work together. That's very difficult in worlds where uh, people are keen to pull up the drawbridges and pull up, put up boundaries between them. But we must always try, I think, to, um, to look beyond that and try and find a way of, of framing dialogue. That's a, it's a very abstract and um, semi-theological answer. But, I'm a, but, but as a human being, I'm, I'm hugely optimistic. I mean, most of my, you know, we, we historians uh, tend to write about warfare because people are interested in warfare. We love books about um, you know, the Battle of the Ardennes. Anthony Beaver wrote a terrific book about the month of October 1944 and the tank battles. We love to read about the Crusades. But it's important to understand how these things are seen by other people. And even, in, even in, within a European context where our, our story in the, the Second World War of the defeat of Hitler, which so self-evidently a very good thing of saving, what we call saving Europe from tyranny, doesn't look so simple if you're living in Bulgaria or Poland or Romania, where Nazi Hitler, Hitler's, Hitler's, Nazi Germany and Hitler were replaced by Soviet communism and oppression of a different kind. And so I think uh, having, a, having a wider horizon, standing a bit further back from the canvas uh, is, is very helpful. Not everybody wants to study and learn, and I suspect uh, those in, in Raqqa and uh, Mosul today are, are are uninterested in the history that, that can be taught, and they're, in fact they're, they're trying to take control of history by blowing up the monastery of St. Elijah and Mosul earlier this week, for example. They are, they are knocking history that, un, in, that they find inconvenient out the way. They're trying to control the past, and as a, as a historian, I think it's fascinating that, those, that, that, that willingness to, to, to try to reshape how we look at these events um, tells me that what we do as writers and as historians is fundamentally important. Yeah, hi. Um, so in a way, the, the way you sort of describe the Silk Road, it's almost like a metaphor of a cross-pollination of cultures, but also where a lot of our cultures have emerged. So do you feel if we were to reorient the way we looked at our histories, where we aren't so divided, where we look at European history in one sense and Asian history in another and Indian history, in, if we were to reorient and understand just the way the metaphor of the Silk Road is, uh, that perhaps that may help change some of the ways in which we're so divisive about our politics or our religions today? Uh, that's, well, it's a, it's a wonderful question because uh, that presupposes that we can change people's ideas. You know, people who, who don't want to listen and don't want to learn, then so on. But I think all, all one can do is one can, one can try to put ideas forward. And um, again, the, the, what I love most about being an academic um, is, is, is hearing what my, my colleagues, my peers, and in fact my students Sometimes the very best questions are from young 17, 18-year-olds. In fact, I was in a car the other night with uh, three 18-year-olds sitting on the edge of their seat asking fantastic question after question after question. I was struggling to keep up with an answer. And that, for me, the, it's, it's, the, it's playing with ideas. What our, what our very clever politicians do with them is a different story. Thank you for a wonderful lecture and discussion. Uh, may I address a question to both of you? Uh, um, uh, I was wondering if you could perhaps say a little more about the Chinese part of the Silk Road, both from a travel writer's perspective and from a historian's perspective. Finally, the master. <laughs> no. Well, um, once of course, can I be heard? Um, there's an awful lot to be said about the Chinese, because, um, of course, historically, the Chinese were the originators of the Silk Road. And one of the fascinating things for me is the transference of inventions from China. It seems to be the most important and uh, astonishing phenomenon of the last many 
2,000 years ago, that almost everything we imagine we invented in the West now was actually invented first in China, where there was printing, paper making, the magnetic compass, gunpowder, map grids, lock gates, the humble wheelbarrow. Um, there's almost nothing that the Chinese didn't think of first and that traveled along the Silk Road, uh, much of it westward, often uh, producing an explosion of a cultural explosion in the West that actually didn't happen in China, rather like printing, um, which produced an absolute revolution um, in Western Europe uh, with people, for instance, being able to read the Bible suddenly, which is a huge uh, phenomenon, um, uh, texts which had normally been manuscripts being disseminated, um, a vast change, and all these um, had been as it were, anticipated, had happened before uh, in China. And that's been the astonishment to me that um, dislodges our sense of a Eurocentric world when we think of that. That is just one of many thoughts I'd have on China. I think I'd, I'd add to that. You know, we, we, uh, Colin is absolutely right about invention. I take a sort of slightly broader view that people, people who talk to each other a lot invent and they create. But the one thing you need for uh, development is you need money. And uh, the reason why Europe is a scientific backwater from about the turn of the year is about the years, or maybe the second century onwards. That those dark, we used to call them the dark ages. Now, as, as late antique and medieval historians, we'd like to look at continuities and forget the total collapse of Europe. But uh, that patronage of the science and the arts wasn't there because there was no, there was no money because Europe didn't, didn't have scholars. We didn't patronize. In fact, it was a source of great anxiety for geographers, from, particularly from the um, from Arab geographers, who would describe the world. They'd describe what happens in China. They'd explain the versions of Colin writing in the 9th and 10th centuries, uh, where to stay, what did you, who did you meet, what do they think, what can you get here, what, what's good, what's bad, what's threatening, where are Tony Blair's challenges and opportunities about the world of South Asia, Southeast Asia, and China. Uh, and the, they <laughs> reach Europe, and they said, there's no point wasting any paper because there's really nothing there. And they say, but we, we, we talk about this a lot, they say. Masudi, the great Arab geographer, says, we talk about this a lot because uh, we revere the ancient Greeks. As, as, in fact, the, as the Indians revered the ancient Greeks, the, Indian Greek, the, in, the, the Indians saw the ancient Greeks, they said they are barbarians, they're pagans, but they invented astronomy, so therefore we must revere them. Uh, and the, the, in, in about, at about a thousand years ago, the question was, why was it that this world that had produced Euclid and Ptolemy and so on, these great scientists and writers, Pythagoras, where had they all gone? And the best answer they could come up with is to say, well, what happened was that the Europeans discovered Christianity, and the Christians are not interested in discussions, they're not interested in science. And that, that sounds odd, but there's a, 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 a wonderful, harrowing, or the perfect quote uh, from St. Augustine, one of the great church fathers, who said, it is not the job of those people who will follow their faith uh, to investigate things too closely. You should accept how things are and not ask questions. And of course, that religious fundamentalism with this heavy discussion, interest in ideas, has now replaced itself the other way around, where we in the West are greatly interested in the exchanges of ideas, and there are, there's no such thing as a united, united um, world. But, there, but in, in many parts of the um, Arab-speaking world, scholarship has, has not been a, a primary function because there hasn't been the money there to pay for it. That's now started to change because even in places like Qatar, there is a campus of Yale, of Northwestern University, Columbia, etc., etc. And you need, for scholars, you need to have um, donors. If any of you happen to have made great fortunes 
uh, for yourselves the last few years. Oxford University, please speak to me or some of my colleagues because we're very keen that the, the next generation, I'm only half joking, the next generation of people who are going to write interesting things and develop things, for that to happen in the West, we need a constant ability for scholars to be allowed to ask questions. And often the questions we ask that we can't answer or they turn out to be blind alleys, but that constant sense of investigation is something that has been our, our defining feature in Europe for the last three or four hundred years, but it may not stay like that forever. Alas, it signaled to me that we have room for just one more question, I think. Who would it be? The gentleman here. You're speaking to a fairly sympathetic audience here in terms of your argument. Um, What I was wondering is how you are received when you're speaking to uh, primarily, say, um, uh, an Occidental audience, if we were to use an older term. It's like asking a musician whether people like their music. You know, I, people will tell me one thing and then who knows what they say when I'm not listening. Uh, but, you know, I think it's, it's, it's fair to say that, 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 that this book has had enormous visibility and beyond my sort of wildest dreams uh, how it's been reviewed wall to wall. And it is obviously, it is saying something, I think, important about history, about connecting the world into this big jigsaw puzzle and, and trying to look at sources that you know, very few people have really looked at. You know, people, uh, even in Oxford, there are not many people who speak Russian, who are able to read some of these materials. And, um, you know, we're under a lot of pressure to, to define how we work. But I've had a big canvas that um, I've been able, through a series of misunderstandings, to have the confidence to think that I might be able to write something like this. But I think the fact that it's, it's been, had that, had that oxygen given to it, is it's saying something that people are chiming with. I, I, it comes out in the States next month, and the reaction then might be very, very different. But I think it's, it's receptive because we don't know who to listen to. There, is, there isn't a good history of, of the world that isn't Eurocentric. There isn't a history that looks at how Russia fits in with the steppe world and fits into Central Asia or China connects. And pulling that all together into a mesh, I think, is, if I've done anything, it's to open that up for, for next people to write about. But I, I think I'm, I'm in the stage of being very relieved that people have been telling me very nice and very generous things. And there, alas, I'm afraid we must leave it. Um, Peter, I think all of you would have realized from the sheer scope. Um, I thought cheer, cheer again. It's my last, my last event.